I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Agnes Frimston, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. So we're back. Hi, Agnes. How are you? I am very well, thank you. How are you, Ben? Yeah, good. Good, thank you. Um, I've realised on these recordings I always say, yeah, very good, very, very good. Ve- very well, very well. Very well, very well. I don't know why I repeat myself. Um, I can only apologise. Because it's an enthusiastic yeah. tick. Just it's <laughs> charming, Ben. It's charming. Brilliant. Um, I mean, in the last intro, I sounded like an absolute, don't know, absolute... Uh, how can I plonker? Let's say that I sound like plonker. an absolute plonker. I wouldn't. I wouldn't go as strong as plonker. I think it was just interesting to hear about uh, how the other half lived. Yeah, frankly. I think I overshared. Um, <laughs> so I'm and, and try actually, and not it was noted that. on Twitter. It was noted on Twitter, which was uh, yes, is is a good medium for <laughs> gauging these responses. Incidentally, if you ever want to tweet about how much you enjoyed the last episode of Undercurrents, um, <laughs> we wouldn't be disappointed no that's true but on a serious note if you do ever want to suggest topics that we could cover Mm -hmm. if you've got particular pressing foreign policy international affairs questions that you'd like answered let us know equally if there's a term that gets bandied around a lot that you don't quite fully understand ben and i probably won't understand it either so we can ask somebody who knows to tell us all about it. We so, know plenty of people there at Chatham House who can help us out with the answers. So, so do you get in yeah. touch. Get in touch with us. Tweet to us. So so my handle is at BenHorton12 and you are at Agnes Frim. I am indeed. So yeah, do get in touch or via at Chatham House. Yeah, equally that works too. So Agnes, I guess the big news is that we've got a new issue of The World Today out. We do, yeah. it's uh, The cover story is all about corruption. Corruption. And about how the West needs to look at itself seriously on this topic and not just label other potentially poorer countries as the source of the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have a really great interview with Kordakovsky on Russia, which, especially at the moment, is very interesting. Uh, he makes some really valid, well, fascinating points about the current regime mm. and what Putin might be up to. Yeah. And particularly pressing both of those, both of those issues are kind of linked, aren't they? I guess, uh, given all we're finding out about how London is a haven for Russian money. Exactly. The other thing that we had in the issue was the journalist Marie Lecon mm-hmm. writing about the joys of online syntax. And in response, my boss and the editor of The World Today, Alan Phillips, countering that. A showdown of intellectual titans. Absolutely. And as a result... We've got them both on the podcast to discuss it. Exciting times. But Ben, who did you speak to? This week I had a really interesting conversation with Laura Wellesley from the Energy, Environment and Resources Department at Chatham House, who was telling us about her recent report titled Choke Points, which is all about the pressure points around the world which, if disrupted, would completely confound the international trade system. It's, it's, a, uh, it's really interesting. Talk. It's really interesting. And if you like a map, that report has some phenomenal maps in And I suppose the other thing to say is that we now have our own feed. We do. So if you've been listening to this through iTunes or Acast and you've been subscribed to the Chatham House feed... Thanks very much. Thank you, firstly. We are grateful. Um, And you can continue to listen to us on that. But we also have our own feed, so search for Undercurrents. It's also meant that we're available on far more platforms than we used to be. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, SoundCloud coming soon. It's all there. Whatever way we can reach you, 
we will try. Mm-hmm. You cannot escape us. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Pervasive. So, shall we have a listen? Yeah, let's have a listen. So now I'm joined by Laura Wellesley, who's a research fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Department at Chatham House. And we're here to talk about the global food trade and a report that Laura co-authored in June 2017 titled Choke Points and Vulnerabilities in the Global Food Trade. Laura, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I just wondered if we could begin by scoping out how big the global food trade is and kind of basically how it works. Yeah, small question to start with. So the global food trade, handily we have a a tool uh, in our department, resourcetrade.earth. So I had a quick look at the 2016 numbers for agricultural products. So that includes food, but also agricultural products traded for fuel, for example, or for feed. But that trade was worth $1.1 trillion uh, in 2016, and it was over $2 billion tons worth of food being moved around the world. So we're talking about a pretty sizable volume of food here. Um, and in terms of major players, it really depends what question you're asking, what what you're interested in as to who those big players are. So we have some really kind of major agricultural producing regions uh, in North America, in South America, in Europe and in, in Asia, South and Southeast Asia. And the countries that we look at in this report, the US, Brazil, Ukraine and Russia, are extremely important in global grain and oilseed trade. So cereals and oilseeds are um, amongst the most important groups of global food trade in terms of volume. But it's also they're also important because imports of those products are often critical to meeting very basic food demand. So the global food trade is extremely complex and virtually every country in the world imports food of some description. But when you're thinking about the importance of imports, that differs from country to country. So in the UK, um, our imports matter to allow access to our very diverse um, diets that we have here, our demand for food which we can't grow. But if you're thinking about countries in the Horn of Africa, for example... Imports there are critical to simply supplying sufficient calories to survive. So there are lots of different questions you can ask about food trade, all important for different reasons. So to turn to the report itself, could you tell us something about the backgrounds of the report and what you were trying to assess? Yeah, well, the the report and the research process really started before my time at Chatham House, but in our department, um, there's been a long process of looking at the patterns of global resource trade. So how trade relationships and trade dependencies are shifting, what's the impact of the rise of China as a major resource importer, for example, to global resource trade and to resource politics. And I think the question we wanted to answer in, in the context of this report was, what's the importance of physical trade and of physical trade routes to global food security and this is a kind of question that has long been looked at in the in the oil context so um, the importance of uh, the gulf producers in terms of global oil supply means that oil traders have long looked at the strait of hormuz and the strait of baba Bandab and the suez canal around the arabian peninsula and their importance to to global oil markets but no one's ever looked at that for other resources and and asked the question of whether those same bottlenecks in the global system matter for for food security and food supply 
you've identified 14 of these kind of pressure points. Could you tell us something about those? I mean, do they have certain characteristics in common and where are they? Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Well, we split them into three groupings. So firstly, there's the the maritime choke points. So those three I just mentioned, the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Bab al-Mandeb and the Suez Canal around the Arabian Peninsula are perhaps the most kind of immediately obvious visually when you look at a map as very narrow points, bottlenecks, along globally important trade routes. And there are others in that vein, so the Straits of Malacca, uh, the Panama Canal, the Strait of Gibraltar and the Dover Strait, but also the Turkish Straits, which link the, the Black Sea, and so the Black Sea producers of Ukraine and Russia, to the Mediterranean and to global markets. We also looked at coastal choke points in major exporting regions. I mentioned earlier that our research focused on the US, on Brazil, on Ukraine and on Russia. So we looked at the the major export hubs in those countries, the, the key kind of ports and port areas that handle an, you know, an extremely large share actually of global export in wheat, maize, rice and soybean. So the US Gulf Coast ports, Brazil's southern ports and Ukraine and Russia's Black Sea ports. And then we looked at three inland choke points, so really important inland transport networks or or trade routes that link producing regions to those three port hubs. So the US inland waterways and its rail network, Brazil's inland road network and the inland rail network of the Black Sea producers. And... Could we talk some more about the particular hazards that might affect these these choke points? I mean, I guess it kind of varies for each one, but is it predominantly weather and climate related? Does the politics of the region have an impact? So you've highlighted a couple in your question. The fact that enormous shares of global exports pass through these points means that capacity and efficiency at those points matter. So how frequent are delays because of insufficient capacity or because of bureaucratic red tape that mean that shipments get stuck there for longer than they perhaps should do. But also how vulnerable are those to disruptions from weather events, so flooding or storms and storm surges, uh, but also drought. That's an important one to many of the choke points we looked at. And then political interference as well. So in the context of food trade and food security, there's been a real focus over recent years on the risk of protectionist trade measures, so export bans and export restrictions that limit global supply, often without too much warning, and that reduce the the stability and predictability and reliability of, of global food trade. So we looked at those as an external hazard to choke points. So what happens if an export restriction is introduced at this particular point in the system? And why does that mean that that restriction is particularly has a particularly significant effect on global trade. And then the third category we looked at was around insecurity and conflict. So what happens when you see armed conflict or a terrorist attack in or around one of these key trade junctures? I think it would be really helpful if we could take a kind of case study of one of these choke points and think it's often covered in the news how important the US is as a food producer but it was really interesting to hear that Brazil is also a major player in this in this area so why don't we take Brazil and what specifically what kind of pressures are at play in Brazil Sure. Well, Brazil is a is a hugely important producer globally. So Brazil has actually overtaken the US as the leading exporter of soybean. 
and it's seen very rapid expansion of its soybean production and exports, primarily to meet growing demand in China for soybean as use for use as animal feed. So it's it's a country that's experiencing, you know, this rapid growth, but at the same time has a number of limits in terms of infrastructural capacity and efficiency. So for a whole host of reasons, not least a kind of unstable political climate, public investment in infrastructure has been lacking. And whilst we've seen a fair amount of private investment, including from Chinese businesses, capacity is still not enough really to support the scale of exports and production that Brazil has seen. So of its inland road network, for example, 70% of those roads are in a poor condition and only 12% of those roads are paved. So if you think about what a nightmare it is if there's a, a huge pothole on your road at home, you know, multiply that by many, many times and think about the fact that this, you know, such a key export commodity is dependent upon trucks moving through roads that just can't take that load. And over the past couple of years, there have been a number of instances of really quite significant bottlenecks or disruptions, including as the result of trucker strikes in response to high diesel prices. But also when you see a combination of different factors that exacerbate an already tight supply-demand balance in terms of infrastructural capacity. So, for example, in, in April 2013, Brazil experienced a, a bumper soybean harvest. But at the time of that harvest, heavy rains hit the ports in the south and wet conditions at the port prevented the loading of those soybean exports. Mm. And its storage capacity at ports was not enough to, to kind of handle that. And at its peak, um, there was a backlog of 200 ships waiting outside of, of port for an average of 39 days and the the cost of that period of delays was estimated to be about 2.5 billion US dollars through delayed shipments and cancelled orders so you can be talking about a really significant economic impact if one of these core choke points is disrupted especially if that happens at a time of peak demand. Going back to the hazards that we discussed earlier, I wondered if you could say something about the impact that climate change might be having on these on these hazards. I mean, it struck me that a lot of the choke points you identified are associated in some way with waterways. So mm-hmm. I would assume that rising sea levels and coastal erosion and mm-hmm. things might be playing a role in the disruption. So yes. is that... Yeah, that's absolutely right. And in the the kind of medium to long term, sea level rise will be particularly important or damaging to exports and infrastructure in and around the US Gulf Coast. And coastal erosion is is particularly severe or projected to be particularly severe along the south coast of Brazil. But actually, we're already seeing the impacts of of climate change on these choke points. So I think often when we think about climate change, we think about very extreme weather events. So, you know, tropical storms um, and how those might worsen or very severe droughts or flood. But actually, as important as those in the context of transport infrastructure is the day-to-day wear and tear on physical infrastructures that we're looking at, so on rail networks or on roads and and, um, port structures. And the fact of having very high or very low temperatures, so freezing or extreme temperatures that can melt uh, road surfaces and can cause rail networks, rail gauges to kink, those kind of things can build up and compound each other, have a compounding effect on the degree of disruption that they bring. And so we're likely to see much more frequent disruptions of that kind of relatively localised and small scale. 
But extreme weather events matter, and we've already seen the Panama Canal, for example, be um, shut for you know for a relatively short period of time, but shut nonetheless, owing to very low water levels in the two lakes that that feed that canal at either side. And the Mississippi as well often sees restrictions on barge loads, for example, when water levels are too low. Now, this might be a bit of a, a silly question, and obviously these 14 choke points are all incredibly important, but if there was one that for you would be sort of particularly concerning, mm-hmm. is there one? Can we pick one that, that you would be the most worried about? <laughs> oh, um, What's the most vulnerable? That's a really tricky question, actually, because in terms of the degree of risk and vulnerability, that's not just a case of which one is most likely to be disrupted and most likely to be most severely disrupted. It's also which which are the choke points that matter most to different groups. And so I guess probably here what comes to mind are those choke points that matter as critical supply routes for countries that are food import dependent. So the ones I mentioned earlier in the Horn of Africa, for example, or along in northern Africa as well. So if we think about the, the events that led up to the Arab Spring, the sudden shortfall of wheat imports from Black Sea exporters was a component of that, you know, cascade of of different disruptions and factors that ultimately led to the Arab Spring. So those two thinking of those two regions, that leads me in turn to think of the Turkish Straits and the, the Black Sea ports. Ukraine and Russia are increasingly important as suppliers of wheat to North Africa, to the Horn of Africa, and to uh, the Middle East. And so I think it's you can't kind of pick one choke point from there because really it's the line of, of three or four. So Turkish Strait, Suez Canal, Strait of Baba Mandeb, and for the Middle Eastern importers, the Strait of Hormuz. If one or multiple of those were to be disrupted, then you could be looking at very serious serious impacts on the food security and human security of vulnerable populations. Overall, are you optimistic for the future of these choke points? Do you think that action is likely to happen to sort of further shore them up? Or do you think this is something that really people should be worrying about a lot more? (laughs) (laughs) Um, How to to go down the middle of that? As the situation stands, I think that there isn't enough attention paid to this to, you know, form the basis of action now that will address the situation and uh, reduce the risks that we look at in our research. So I I think there is still a a quite significant and urgent need to bring this up the agenda. And that doesn't need to be in the context of food security or in the context of doomsday outlooks in terms of (laughs) the impact that they'll have on food supply and food security. I think it's really about understanding the patterns of global trade and sort of bringing the more day-to-day discussions of transport infrastructure and why that matters and why what our trade actually depends on, bringing that into national and international conversations about food security, about national security, about energy security and I guess just opening our eyes a little more to how reliant we are upon a small handful of key kind of trade routes and export hubs. But there are avenues through which that will happen. I think that an increasing focus on climate smart investments will mean that this is increasingly on the minds of private and public sector actors. So yeah, there is some hope there. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. 
So I'm here today with two people, Marie Lecon, who is a freelance journalist, and Alan Phillips, who is my boss and the editor of The World Today. Thank you both for coming. So we're here because both of you have written pieces in the latest issue of The World Today, arguing different sides of the positive or negative elements of a new language online. So Marie, you sort of make the point that older columnists have long been raging at lazy youngsters sort of desecrating the English language online, but actually they're missing the point. So this is actually a sort of a new form of English that's being created in real time and conveys more nuance or terms are more loaded than just the sort of standard words. Oh, yes, exactly. And I think that and, and I can sort of understand because what they see is sort of, you know, like words which are misspelt, um, punctuation not being used properly or not being used at all. And obviously from the outside, I think that can look as sort of just young, silly young people kind of, you know, deciding not to write properly. But it actually, it's kind of become a sort of like new language and actually even at each tiny tweak actually has meaning. For example, and I discussed that in the piece, I think the use of capital letters um, can change the meaning of something entirely or question marks. So in the sense that if... If a question has a question mark at the at the end on the internet, it means that it's a question that um, is, is waiting for an answer. And I think if there's no question mark, it's more of a kind of a rhetorical question, nearly. And so, um, yeah, there's that, that difference, but which, again, I think if you're not aware of it, then you're not necessarily going to catch that nuance. And how accessible do you think this new language is? That's a bit of a tough one, because actually I think that you either get it or you don't, and it's actually quite hard to explain. And you sort of learn it by osmosis. Um, so I know the PS would like compare it to learning a different language. And actually, if you move to a different country, as I did, you don't. There are certain words uh, you will never, you know, sort of like see translated, which is from picking up the context, or like once or twice or three times in sentences, then you find out. Well, like you guess what they mean, and I guess it's kind of the same thing for those online tweaks. And are there sort of classic markers that you would say sort of defines the language online? Ooh, uh, that's an interesting one, actually. I think, again, the difference between sort of using capital letters at the beginning of sentences um, and full stops definitely sort of changed that. And also but using occasionally capital letters in the middle of a sentence, which obviously kind of would translate in real life as someone, someone you know, starting, not quite shouting, but, you know, clearly sort of like raising their tone temporarily, you're like making, putting an emphasis on a bit of a sentence. So I'd say, yeah, sort of like playing around, especially with capital letters and punctuation. Or, you know, there's lots of different ways to, again, sort of like show different intonation, I think, which you'd pick up sort of in person really easily when the person is talking. But online, you don't really have that. So I think the effort is really to try and translate that into text language. And do you think this has come from text messages? It has, but I think it's also fundamentally because instance of like messaging in text form is a fundamentally like a very new thing. And so I think that it's not... When people used to write, I don't know, like letters or professionally in newspapers or whatever, it was very much a different kind of form of language. Um, whereas this is, I think, people trying to very much sort of like convey what they're saying. It's kind of an extension of real life conversations as opposed to an entirely different medium. And Alan, you've got some views. Uh, I do have some views, um, but I should start by saying I thought um, Marie's uh, exposition of digital written language was really interesting because... Uh, instead of looking like a sort of jumble of laziness, which I immediately thought it was, I understood that this is a, a new form of language for a new medium uh, and attempts to bring to the written word to, to text uh, some elements of face-to-face -face contact. So uh, you can inject uh, mood into what is otherwise a, uh, um, a dry recitation. And are you tempted to give it a go? 
Absolutely not. No, uh, she's <laughs> Marie. Marie has convinced me um, that it's not something you just dip into. Uh, you have to learn it. You could probably learn it at any age, but you've got to have the right um, the right mentality. And um, strange as it may seem, um, I was young once. I do remember when my mother started using the word hassle when she had to wait in the queue at the post office or something like that. Now, to me, uh, hassle was defined by Lou Reed as uh, what the police do to bad boys and girls on the streets of New York. Um, so if I, was going to, uh, if I was going to try to write uh, in, uh, in digital language, I would be immediately exposed as a fraud, I think. <laughs> I would make myself ridiculous. Um- but then again, actually, so to pick up on that, I noticed something recently because I think it's also, it is about age and I think there's different levels as well because I found myself whenever I have to talk to younger people, sort of like, let's say teenagers, people in their very early 20s for work through Twitter, I've noticed myself being being a lot more likely to actually use sort of like, you know, hyper text speak basically and sort of like shorten words a lot more, never ever use capital letters. And it kind of reminded me of basically my sort of, middle-class friends who are always kind of mortified saying oh my god you know we had a builder in and I just I just sounded cockney and I'm not sure how it happened but you know I just didn't I can stop myself and I kind of feel like that talking to younger people as well saying I can't yeah I'm using words I would never normally use but um so I think it's yeah so it's sort of reciprocal it's a way of speaking that brings people together but it irritates you Alan well I've noticed that um, even I can be infected by it Uh, I'm normally uh, very careful and cautious in what I write. But uh, if I have a smartphone in my hand, that all goes away. And if I've got some contributor or someone uh, who's complaining about what I've done to their copy, I might just write sort of, oops, exclamation mark, <laughs> and uh, leave it at that. Well, that's not what they want. They're very surprised, <laughs> even angered and, and maybe upset. Um, so, uh, well, I'm I'm very cautious about responding to people on the smartphone and I always think oh better put that in the draft folder and come back to it uh, um, later because there is a sort of there is not only a way of using the language but uh, there are definite moods uh, in on online writing uh, usually very bouncy or irredeemably angry and um, to be either of either of those doesn't necessarily fit um, when I'm communicating with people I don't know particularly well. Mm. That's really interesting because I get exactly the opposite thing and actually literally sort of like on the way here I was talking um, to an editor about something I might be doing next week. And, and you know, and I sort of send my messages with, you know, hi, exclamation mark, blah, 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 cheers, exclamation mark, Marie. Um, and she kind of replied a one-line thing, um, which was you know, very polite, but sort of, you know, with no kind of exclamation mark or no, like, that'd be delightful, you know, that'd be delightful, whatever. And I had a split second of, God, does she actually want me to do this? Like, is, is she being forced? She doesn't sound happy about it at all. And then it took a second to realise, actually, she is sort of like 20 years older than me. And I think that, you know, she's just replying to an email in a professional manner. And to her, like, that's not going to sound like she's cross. But my first thought was, oh, God, what have I done? Is she cross with me? <laughs> well, I'm with your editor on this. I think there's far, there's far too much fake friendliness uh, uh, in online 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 communication. People are always asking me how I am and am I going to have a good weekend, wishing me a good weekend. Well, I feel like saying I haven't had a good weekend since 1972. <laughs> so I would say, though, you are the only person that abbreviates thank you in an email. So... I'm, I think some of this should be dealt with a pinch of salt. Yeah, well, I've obviously been infected, but I, I did, <laughs> I did grow up. My first form of professional communication was telegraphies, 
where you would where you had to pay by the word. So you would collapse words altogether instead of saying, "I'm going to Beirut." I'm going to Beirut as soon as possible. It would just be Beirut warding ASAP, uh, and that would you only have to pay for two for two words. It does date me, <laughs> or should I say, uh, we didn't actually have to pay by the word, but it was just uh, it was just the lingo which we used, uh, so that other people didn't understand us. But in that sense, I think character limits online, especially Twitter, although obviously it's changed slightly now. It is that restriction of characters and space and so having to be more imaginative with the way that you use letters yeah i think that is a that is an enormous spur to wit 140 characters um 280 characters less so and there are some people who can be witty even funny in uh, on a regular basis in 140 characters and they are these are works of genius. But in your piece, Alan, I think you actually raised a really interesting point about levels of education when it comes to these different levels of language. Yes. Um, uh, I'm being a bit puritanical here. If you're, if you're well educated, you can write in various registers. Um, you know that there's a fundamental difference uh, between uh, writing an essay, which is going to be marked by your teacher and communicating with your, with your peer group, and you're never going to get these confused. But if uh, you don't have such a high standard of education, you might. I think it's dangerous to think that the, the, the digital language will get you very far because there will always be a need for some gold standard, some formal language which we, you can use to anyone, not your, not your peer group, um, not your family, but maybe people you've never met before, particularly in, in the job market. So... Um, I'm very keen that uh, that young people should know that uh, this that um, their digital language is a is a playful thing and not necessarily a life skill. But I did notice, Marie, you did conclude your piece saying this was going to be the language of the future. Yes and no. I mean, I, I do think that we are going to keep on it. A, I'd say that is going to keep evolving. Um, a lot. And so actually, you know, what we might be using now will probably not be used, you know, in, in five to 10 years. But I do think that, yeah, this because again, I think it's about the very nature of what online, um, sort of online text and online speak is trying to convey. So I think that that's going to stay as something of saying, you know, people will keep on using tweaks in the way they write to convey what they would otherwise sort of, you know, show via body language or facial expressions or anything. So I don't think that's going to go away. And so I would agree partly with your point in the sense that I think I'm still very much of the generation where, you know, where I remember when we had to speak sort of like quite um, quote unquote normally online and then, you know, kind of like made that switch later. So I can definitely do both. But actually, I mean, then that's purely anecdotal. But what I find really interesting is so whenever I get emails from either so sort of like kids or teenagers who are at school or early at university who want to talk to me about their journalism project or interview me for like something they're doing, they end up sending me the most formal emails. And, it, and it's quite funny. It's sort of like, you know, like, to whom it may concern, or like, you know, like, dear Miss Lecomte, like, you know, I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. And, it's, and, you know, I always want to reply saying, Jesus Christ, like, you know, it's fine. I'm a freelance journalist. You can just say, hi, I'm doing this thing. Um, so I'd say that actually, if anything, they seem even more anxious to to be seen as formal when they do try to be formal, which is quite an interesting and unexpected thing. Oh well, I'm very pleased. To, I'm very pleased to hear that. <laughs> I wasn't suggesting that everyone at school should be made to sit down once a week and, and write a letter on paper to their granny, um, <laughs> and have it have it checked for for capitalisation and uh, and punctuation. So, if it's about largely levels of formality, as long as people can switch between them, does it make you less angry? 
Yes, as long as I'm conv- as long as long as everyone knows that this is a playful thing, and we all play with language all the time. It's the basis of our jokes, and the way people talk is a source of endless fascination, really. So uh, we'll always be play. In fact, to play with language is to be human, really. I think. So, as a a youth thing, is that a thing? As a, <laughs> as a youth. A youth, as a youth, as a youth, as a youth thing, uh, it's fine because people will will play with language, and there's a medium which you allow us to do it. So I don't have any, um, I don't have any intrinsic um, hostility to it. I suppose I'm not very happy about the overfriendliness of uh, of email. The best piece of advice I heard I got last year was on sign-offs. You either choose two words which you're always going to use and you never think about it, like best wishes, wishes or whatever. And if it's someone you know very well, you don't even sign off at all. Uh, and no X's or anything like that. Or mm. hope you're having a good weekend. I just put cheers exclamation mark on everything, which I think is over-familiar. But I started doing it a few years ago and I can't stop doing it now. And I found myself occasionally even, you know, sort of sending emails. I'm, I'm trying to think of, you know, MPs I've never met or something <laughs> saying, you know, blah, blah, could you talk to me about this topic you've been doing some work on? Cheers, M. Um, right. And afterwards I'm a bit, oh, especially when they reply and say, you know, kindest regards of whatever people yeah. use. Uh, but then I suppose that's also a different thing because English is my second language, so... Um, the different registers are probably harder to play with um, in that case. But still, no, I, I do agree it's an issue and I can't stop doing it. Um, so, no, no, I, I'm actually weirdly with you on that one. I wish I could be less familiar on the internet, but I can't. Well, I, I don't know. I think I, I think that gives a gives a, a nice impression of your character. You're, you are a bouncy, you have a bouncy character. Maybe you, maybe you don't want to give that impression. But that's what it would to me. It's what, oh. But yeah, because again, for me, it just means, like for me, that's just being, being enthusiastic as being normal. So being enthusiastic on the internet, for me, it conveys just being normal. Being over-enthusiastic on the internet conveys that you're just being enthusiastic in person. And being normal on the internet, for me, basically conveys that I'm either a very stern person or I'm really annoyed at the person I'm emailing. And I can't shake that at all, uh, because I think that's always how I've used the internet. Okay, well... Um, um, Stern, stern is the mood I'm, I'm aiming for. Well, thanks very much to both of you for joining us. You can read both pieces in the latest issue of The World Today and they're linked below. And that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. I hope you've enjoyed our conversations this week. The two pieces we talked about will be linked below. And if you're feeling generous, do leave us a review, not just because we need constant affirmation, um, but also because it helps other people find us. And do follow Chatham House on Twitter, at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. But in the meantime, I'm Ben Horton. I'm Agnes Frimston, and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>